0: Good early afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium, where today, for the second day in a row, I believe we'll hear some some real exposition on the common law, a theme that's strong in Tom Bell's book, Intellectual Privilege, is his appreciation of the common law. Uh, And yesterday, we had an event called Bruno Leone at 100, Bruno Leone Uh, The the namesake of the Instituto uh, Bruno Leone in Italy was a a, a wonderful exponent of the common law. Uh, Some of what came up yesterday is that it might have been his influence that uh, caused Friedrich Hayek to really appreciate the merits of the common law. And again and again, uh, Leone-like in his book, Tom Bell comes back to the the merits of of the common law. You're probably familiar uh, with the the format of events like this. Uh, First, I'll briefly introduce our, our speakers. Uh, We'll hear first from Tom Bell, then a a response or discussion from from Chris Newman. Uh, We'll do a little discussion among ourselves here in the dais, some Q&A, and after that we'll retire upstairs for sandwiches and conversation, having solved all of the problems around (laughs) copyright, I am sure. Uh, Tom and his publisher uh, uh, Mercatus have done an interesting thing with intellectual privilege. Uh, They've resolved to commit to uh, treatment of the book under the 1790 Copyright Act. Uh, There's a copyright note in the front of the book that I won't read the entire thing to you, Uh, but but it says that the copyright terms applicable to the book are those that had effect in 1790. Mercatus Center is bound to make good faith efforts to comply with the formalities of the 1790 Copyright Act, or if current government policies make that impossible, to approximate the effect of those formalities through other means. And there's a statement that uh, Professor Bell and the Mercatus Center uh, expect uh, people to rely on the agreement between the two in making use of the book in any way they wish, uh, including perhaps a, a movie of, of intellectual, <laughs> intellectual privilege in the very near future. Let me turn now to introducing the author of the book, uh, Tom Bell. And Professor Tom W. Bell joined the faculty of uh, the Fowler School of Law at Chapman University in 1998, specializing in high-tech legal issues and he's written a variety of papers on intellectual property and internet law. He received his Juris Doctor from the University of Chicago Law School in 1993, where he served both as a member of the University of Chicago Law Review and as articles editor and co-founder of the University of Chicago Legal Roundtable. After a brief stint in private practice, he entered teaching in the law and technology program at the University of Dayton Law School. And during one year leave of absence from that school, prior to joining in Chapman faculty, he served as director of telecommunications and technology studies at the Cato Institute, which, as I've joked before, was the high point of his career. <laughs> um, uh, P- Professor Bell has been with us before. He's, uh, we can add to his plaudits that he's prolific. Uh, he was a tr- contributor to copyright unbalanced from incentive to excess, and you can see uh, you can see that event at cato.org uh, from December two thousand and twelve. You'll also see me making that joke about uh, Tom's career, which is now old. <laughs> Uh, After Tom presents, we'll hear from uh, Chris Newman. Uh, Chris is at the George Mason University School of Law, uh, where where he's an assistant professor. He graduated magna cum laude from the University of Michigan Law School in 1999, where he served as book review editor for the Michigan Law Review. He received Michigan's Michigan's highest law school award, the Henry M. Bates Memorial Scholarship. Following law school, Chris clerked for Judge Alex Kaczynski in the Ninth Circuit, with whom he co-published an article entitled, What's so fair about fair use? From 2000 to 2007, he was in litigation with a Los Angeles law firm. Uh, then he went to UCLA, where uh, he began an Olin Searle Fellowship in Law, focusing on property theory and intellectual property. Uh, he served as a research fellow at, ACL, at UCLA's ACLU's uh, at, at uh, UCLA's Intellectual Property Project until moving to Mason Law. So we'll hear from him after uh, Professor Bell. Tom W. Bell, please. I trust Jim. This will advance me through. I trust
1: as well. Okay. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, Thanks for coming here to listen to uh, some talk about copyright today. I'd like to tell you some things about my uh, new book, Intellectual Privilege, published by the Mercatus uh, Center. And I'd like to share with you some things that uh, you would see in the book. One of the charms of the book, I dare say, is that it has a lot of illustrations, charts, diagrams. And uh, that's basically what I'm going to share with you today. It'll get us some of the highlights of the book. There's a lot going on in the book. There's some other things, too. And I hope you will grab a copy. And I look forward to hearing uh, what you have to say yourselves about copyright. One of the fun things about copyright is that uh, fellow friends of liberty disagree about it. And I think that we can all learn from our um, disagreements about uh, copyright. Now, I present this as a libertarian view of copyright. I will not pretend it is the libertarian view of copyright. I don't think there is a single libertarian view of copyright, and I think that's a good thing. It shows the people who are not libertarians that smart people who like liberty can disagree amongst themselves, and it gives us something to talk about. Now, why do I present this as a libertarian view of copyright? Well, here is a chart from the book. It's basically a take on the Nolan chart. I'm sure you're familiar with the Nolan chart. Basically, the Nolan chart presents in a two-dimensional uh, layout what most people see as a one-dimensional left-right or spectrum. So you can see the left-right spectrum right across the middle there. In contrast to the Nolan chart, what I've done is I've tracked out, and of course this is a generalization. I don't want to be unfair to my friends on the right or left. It's a generalization, but I think there's some truth in it. You'll see I've laid it out so that my friends on the right, they're friends of property, as am I. I really like property rights. I think Chris would agree with me that in academia that can sometimes leave you in a lonely place. Uh, Nonetheless, I'm gonna stick to my guns on that. I think property rights are wonderful social institutions. We need more of them, and my friends on the right agree with me about that. Where I disagree with some of my friends on the right is in regarding copyright as a legitimate form of property. It has property-like aspects. Indeed, I think its best aspects are its property-like aspects, but as the title of the book indicates, I think it's better understood not as a form of property, but as a form of government-granted privilege, rather like, say, taxi medallions or welfare benefits. Now, this does not mean it's per se bad, okay? It simply means that when we assess copyright, we should look at it through the same lenses that we apply to questions like, should we have taxi medallions? Should we have farm subsidies? You know, should we or should we not? It's a cost-benefit analysis we engage in. So my friends on the right agree with me about property rights, but you can see they tend to glom together copyright with other types of property. I think they've been bamboozled by a rhetorical trick. And as a consequence, they do not have a lot of respect for freedom from copyright. And that's where I agree with people on the left. My friends on the left say, we have some problems with copyright. It does restrict freedom of speech. Copyright tells you you cannot go out on a public corner and recite MLK's I Have a Dream speech, and you can't, by the way, because it's under copyright. In fact, the copyright is owned by the British conglomerate, EMI, and you can buy a DVD of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech for $20, and you can watch it in the privacy of your own home. But even that would not give you a license to go down to the Lincoln Memorial and repeat his words, and that's a real restriction on freedom of speech because you're left to paraphrase his thoughts. Now, that does not convey Martin Luther King's ideas really very well. If you say, well, Martin Luther King talked about having this reverie about the future, and that is not the same. <laughs> and furthermore, I think it's worth noting that it's one thing for friends of copyright to say we should protect artists and authors and they do creative things, and I'm totally on board with that. I have a lot of respect for the arts. In fact, I have arts training myself. But most people do not have at their fingertips the ability to come up with original expressions, okay? They just don't. And to all those people you say, we're kind of going to limit you. You who have to borrow other people's words to make your points can't do that. That's copyright protected. And so my friends on the left recognize that. Now, where do I disagree with them? They don't have enough respect if you ask me for property rights. They say, oh, yeah, copyrights, that's a form of property and, you know, whatever. They're just tools of the state, and we tinker with them as we see fit for the public good. Uh, No, I don't want you messing with my real property and my tangible property rights in that way. So there you have it in a nutshell. The libertarian, a libertarian view, I think Chris can probably, you know, he'll probably give you a different but also pretty libertarian view. But a libertarian view is that we should have both property rights, yay property rights, intangibles, the kinds of property rights that are recognized in a state of nature and at the common law. And we should also recognize that we need to have freedom from copyright. Both are good things and we can't achieve both. Now, as Jim noted, I'm a big fan of the common law. The common law is in the subtitle of the book. The subtitle is Copyright Common Law and the Common Good. Why am I such a big fan of the common law? Well, it's kind of difficult to do that very quickly. This is one reason I offer a diagram. It's worth a thousand words, they say. Very quickly, I like the common law because it comes from the bottom up. The common law originally was found by judges in the practices of people in the streets and in the markets and in the fields. It's a bottom-up process. And originally, court decisions recognized the common law by bringing in witnesses and asking them, how in your community do you resolve these kinds of disputes? And of course, they added to that and elaborated on that. And subsequent to that, commentators, such as, uh, as, as Cook and Bracton, kind of summarized the common law and did a great service for us all but it comes from the bottom up even though it's distilled and as this chart indicates the the influences work back down again. It's complicated. It's a a tapestry really. It's very difficult to sum up the common law and that's a beautiful thing. It's organic, it's complicated, it's a rich web. And this is in sharp contrast to copyright. Copyright does not exist in a state of nature. It does not exist at the common law. It comes from the top down from Washington DC to us. It is a directed, planned order. Now, I'm not gonna say that's necessarily bad. I'm not anti-copyright, but let's recognize the beast for what it is. Copyright is a planned order from the top down, it's purely statutory, and that creates public choice problems. Now, I'm gonna illustrate for you in a number of ways how copyright has just ballooned out of anything the founders would have recognized. I'm a big fan of the founders. In fact, I've decided to make my hair like founders' hair. I'm such a big fan of the founders. I don't think I'm going to go with the tricorn. Someone was pushing me that way. No wig, no tricorn, but long hair, sure. Uh, And this is just one quick peek at how copyright has changed since the 1790 Copyright Act. Note that date, 1790. Those were the same guys, and they were guys, the same guys who basically created the United States, ratified the Constitution. And when they came around to passing the first copyright statute, which they did pretty quickly once they formed the first Congress, Mm -hmm. how did they do it? in a lean, mean, clean way. A little over a thousand words. That's like, you know, twice the length of an (laughs) op-ed. That's how quickly they did it. And this is actually a very conservative count of the present act. Under some counts, it's such a mess. You can include all kinds of stuff in there. Some counts, I get up to 130,000 words or more. This is a pretty conservative count of the present act. But you could say, oh, well, you you know, that's just words. What matters is what's in the words. Well, let's talk about what's in the words. How copyright has changed over the years because it's a statute and what happens with statutes? Lobbyists get a hold of them and they take them to town. What have they done with regard to just one aspect of copyright, the length of copyright, the term? As Jim noted, we've released this book, Intellectual Privilege, under the Founders' Copyright. That's what I call returning to the 1790 Copyright Act. Big fan of the Founders, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me, so this book, will definitely be in the public domain in 28 years. In fact, the founders did it a little differently. They said, tell you what, we're gonna give you a 14-year term at the start, and then if you want to renew your 14-year term, you can get another 14-year term. How Mercatus is gonna do that, (laughs) we'll find out in about 14 years. I'm sure uh, we'll work it out somehow. 28 years maximum, that's what you see with that far left block, 28 years maximum. Where are we today? Well now, I had to approximate this, now it's for an individual, It's life or really death of the author plus 70 years. So I figured, you know, someone lives to 35 and then they, you know, they live to 70 and then we add 70 years. And then you get this. And you can see the trend is always up. Copyright getting longer and longer and longer. Now why? Maybe it's because lawmakers said, oh, 28 years isn't enough. We need a little more copyright. Let's just bump it up to 42. Oh, that's okay. Let's take it up to 56. And they're calibrating things and they're going out and asking people, you got enough copyright? Is everything good? But that's not how it happened, of course. We know how it happens. It happens all the time in DC. This is why we have farm subsidies. This is why we have welfare why we have so many federal programs. Because we have concentrated benefits, we have special interests who go to Congress and and do what they're allowed and indeed encouraged to do. They represent their interests. But we don't have a countervailing lobby that says, hey, you're imposing diffuse costs on the rest of us. Every time you up copyright, you're taking away a little of my liberty. You're saying to me, I can't go recite MLK's speech. I can't stand on a street corner and play my guitar. I can't even use my own throat. If I were to sing happy birthday to you right now, I could be potentially liable for $150,000 in statutory damages, even though your ear is my throat. Now, that's a restriction on liberty. It may be for the good. It may not be, but that is a cost that we all bear from copyright. And lawmakers, frankly, don't take that into account, which is why the duration of copyright goes up and up and up and up. I'll say one more thing about this. You'll notice the shapes here are a little funny. They're L-shaped, kind of shaped like Oklahoma. Why is that? It's because when lawmakers extend the copyright, they make it retroactive. So just take that orange block there, the 1831 Act. When they passed that act in 1831, if I had a laser pointer here, I'd show you. Do I? When they passed that Act in 1831, it worked back to the left a little bit. And they said, hey, those of you who already have created your works under the extant stimuli, you know, the incentives for copyright, already got you off your hineys, and you created works, here's some more good stuff for you. It's a freebie. Why did lawmakers do that? Well, I don't think I have to tell you why. It has to do with public choice pressures. Here's an especially salient illustration of how copyright has gotten so big. This tracks... Steamboat Willie's copyright. Now, for reasons I discuss in the book, it turns out I think Steamboat Willie is, in fact, not copyright protected. But Disney treats it as if it were copyright protected. You can read about it in the book. It turns out that Disney did not comply with the stringent formalities of the 1909 act that enforce. But Let's set that aside. Disney treats Steamboat Willie as copyrighted, and with their lawyers, you're gonna basically nod and say, sure, whatever. Well, look what happened. 1928, Steamboat Willie, released in the public domain. At that time, the copyright term lasted 56 years maximum. And so that's the red line up. Steamboat Willie created. This dotted line shows, uh uh-oh, the clock is running on Steamboat Willie. When it hits that horizontal axis, its copyright expires and it falls in the public domain. But, But that doesn't happen, does it? Oddly enough, as Steamboat Willie approaches the public domain, lawmakers decide to bump up the copyright term a little more. Oh, Okay, well, that's nice for Disney. Uh Uh-oh, it's running out again. Well, here's some more copyright. It's running out again. Do I have to tell you what I predict is going to happen before 2030? They're already talking about it. Is that because it's for the public good? I'd like to think so. I leave you to draw your own conclusions. Let's talk about some other ways the founder's copyright is different from present-day copyright. So again, this book is under the founders' copyright. Maximum term 28 years, maybe only 14 if we can't figure out how to renew. Now the term is life of the author, death really, plus 70 years. For other works, for works created like Disney's works under the work for hire doctrine, it could be up to 120 years. Interestingly, the founders only cared about protecting against exact copies, not translations or derivative works. So you could take this book, and I hope you will. You can translate it in German. You can do a musical. (laughs) You know, you could do a painting based on the book. Have at it. I'm not claiming that. I won't sue you. That would get you in trouble today. Interestingly, and this is a very powerful argument, if you ask me, against the view that the founders had a natural rights view of copyright, those are the three things the founders cared about, maps, books, and charts. Now, today, copyright covers basically every fixed work of expression. Basically, grocery lists could be covered in theory. Certainly, all this stuff mentioned here. Now, think about this for a second. The natural rights view of copyright is that it's lock-in, basically. It says, well, it's kind of like Locke talks about you go out in a state of nature and you collect acorns, and those (coughs) are your acorns because you've mixed your labor with them. And the lock-ins tell a story about copyright that's similar. It's not crazy. I don't think it works ultimately, but it's not crazy. The argument is you sit down at your desk, and it's like collecting acorns, because you mix your mental efforts with this kind of noumenal realm of ideas. And it's like collecting acorns. You collect notes for a song or words for a book, and you fix them in a piece of paper, and that's your property. Okay, so that's the argument. Founders knew about Locke, and they knew about paintings and sculptures and music and architecture. They knew all about that stuff. They appreciated that stuff. They were not Philistines. But they did not extend copyright to those works of art. And why? Well, if you ask me, I think it's very clear. They had a utilitarian view of copyright. They said, hey, we're trying to build a country here. Here's what we need. Books, maps, charts, music, sculpture, paintings, very nice. That's not what we need. We're trying to build a civilization here. Let's stick to the basics. And furthermore, they understood they were thereby creating a government privilege. And the founders understood that governments need to be limited. They had a great fear, based in their history, of monopolies created by the state. And so they said, man, we're... Actually, Madison and Jefferson has mentioned correspondence about this. They say, we're very wary of doing this. We're worried we're going too far even with this copyright thing. But we will tell you what. We'll put it in the Constitution, because otherwise it would not be legitimate. It doesn't exist in common law. It doesn't exist in the state of nature. So at least it's constitutional. You can say that for copyright. I don't know if you can say that for farm subsidies. We'll put this in the Constitution, and we'll do the bare minimum. And then we're done, because there's no natural right to it. And today it's everything. Remedies. Statutory damages... I should actually flesh that out. It's like, I didn't include every, all the remedies on either side, actually, but basically this is the way the picture looks. Today, wow, you could go to jail if you really engage in severe copyright infringement. That's not typically the case, but even if you're not engaged in criminal practices, again, statutory damages allow copyright plaintiffs in civil litigation up to $150,000 per infringed work. So again, if I were to sing Happy Birthday, if I were to show Steamboat Willie up there, I could, in theory, be assessed $150,000 in statutory damages. Statutory damages under the founder's copyright, I assure you, were nothing like that. So this is a pattern we see. And it's because copyright's a statute and because we have public choice pressures. Now, in the book, I talk about a number of ways to respond to this, and I want to quickly share with you, this is getting kind of into the weeds, but I want to show you that this isn't just all me complaining about the state of the world. I do think there's things we can do to make copyright better, and I offer concrete suggestions in the book. I won't fully explain here, I don't have time and you don't have the patience, why I think these are good ideas, but I did want to share with you a couple of specific provisions that if I found the right lawmakers, I could hand this to them, they would put it in the act and would make the world a better place, if you ask me. And one is this proposed 107B. Aficionados of copyright recognize 107 right now as the repository of the fair use doctrine, That's 107. So I would put 107, fair use, in 107a, and I would add this 107b, and why? Basically what this says is, if you combine your copyright privileges with your common law rights, such as to contract or tort or property, and you grab too much power, we're gonna make you give up your copyright privileges. But you can still enjoy your common law rights. I'll give you an example. Suppose I sold this book with a shrink wrap. And it said on the cover, by taking off this shrink wrap, you contractually agree to not criticize the contents. Now, just like you click OK on a computer program, you're bound, you could be bound by that in theory, in law. A court might uphold that as a contract between you and me. And so if you tear the shrink wrap off the book and you open it up and you go, oh, I don't agree with this, and you write a blog post, I could sue you for breach of contract and infringing the copyright. Because why? because you've used the copyright beyond the bounds of my permission thereby. So I have thereby taken away your fair use rights. Now that doesn't seem like a good thing, does it? And it's not. And courts have recognized cases like that as copyright misuse. All this does is this codifies what courts have done, because it's a little bit uncertain exactly what courts mean with copyright misuse. There's not a lot of holdings. It's not a thing litigated much. The holdings are kind of in different places. So here I tried to sum it up and say this is a right you can stand on. If someone combines their copyright with a a contractual restriction that would infringe your fair use rights, they're going to lose their copyright privileges unless and until they give up those contract rights. And why do I like this? Because this is a gentle way to push people out of copyright into the common law. This says, let's try to develop a world where you can stand on your own two feet to protect yourself, if you're an artist or a publisher, just using the common law. Of course, no one wants to do that. They say, I want it all. I want my statutory rights and my common law rights. And 107 b would say to those people, that's too much. You don't get all that. We're going to make you choose. And some people would, I think, choose to rely on their common law rights. And that would help develop a whole kind of ecosystem, uh, a market structure where people realize, oh my gosh, I can get everything I want in terms of stimulating the production of expressive works from the common law. Because now there's institutions and business models and standard practices for using contracts and torts and property rights to do all the stuff we used to rely on, on copyright to do. So that's 107B, one of the suggestions. The other one's shorter. This simply says, for people who decide, you know, copyright, I don't need it. I'm going to rely on contracts, maybe, uh, maybe uh, micropayments and smart contracts. I'm, I don't need copyright. Well, if you go that route, you say I'm going to dedicate this, like this book, in 29 years, it'll be in the public domain. Well, maybe Mercatus will decide to make it available under some kind of contractual device. There's some concern that a court might step in and say, mm, "We don't like what you're doing with your common law rights. Somehow, you're doing too much. You're kind of duplicating copyright, so we're going to take away your common law rights." And I think that's a disaster. That's got things exactly backwards. The common law is what we should always protect. The statutory rights are just kind of icing on the cake. But there is some concern under present legal doctrines that the federal statute might interfere with these private rights. And this simply says, no, that won't happen. So again, this is a way to get people to stop relying so much, stop relying so much on copyright. And learn to stand on their own two feet as it were. A Couple more things and we'll hand it over to Chris for some comments. I think actually copyright's becoming less important and let me just give you this example. Think of Elvis Presley back in the 1950s. Now, like most musicians, I'm sure Elvis was a bit of a ham. I play guitar myself, and you know, you've got to stop me sometimes. I'm sure Elvis was the same way. I'm no Elvis, but I know what musicians are like. Elvis would probably not have gone to the trouble to pay out of his own pocket to make You Ain't Nothing But a Hound Dog an international hit. It was incredibly expensive in his day just to make the recording much less to distribute the work to the whole world. And what this chart shows is that, even assuming Elvis was willing to subsidize his own creation and publication, he probably would not be able to cover his average costs. His average cost, that first recording, super high, his marginal cost of distributing his work, very expensive. And Elvis is not a rich guy. So he says, I love my music, I wanna share it with the world, but I can't afford to do this on my own. Elvis needs copyright. And I think we can be glad he had copyright. It's enriched our world. Yay, Elvis. The world has changed. Yay, technology. What technology has done is it made it possible for even a chump like me with a laptop and an internet connection, what's it cost me, $2,000, copy garage band, laptop, internet? For better or worse, <laughs> I'm no Elvis, but I can reach the world like that. Elvis would have salivated over that. And indeed, I've posted some music online and I know lots of people who had. I can't recommend my own work, but the point is, ask yourself, you want new music these days? Where do you go? Well, many people just go to YouTube. They find what some kid has posted. My daughter has posted some of her music. Again, it's not Elvis, maybe, but it's so much easier than it used to be, which means what? Technological changes have brought down the average and marginal costs of creating and distributing copyrighted works to the level where even hobbyists can step into the breach and do what Elvis used to do. And I'll just offer you this little example here, because I won't sing it. Jerry told me not to, and it's good advice. There's a little song I wrote dedicated to the love of my life. It's an alternative to happy birthday. You got a birthday? I'll sing it to you later over sandwiches. And I want you to note here, so one thing is people like me will do this now because we can. It's so cheap and easy. And notice what I did here with the copyright symbol. This is in the public domain. This is my way of saying to those people who claim a copyright and happy birthday. By the way, I think that copyright claim is bogus also. But it just sickens me that people are just trying to celebrate their family and friends a happy day. And they have people walking in saying, you got to pay me for that, especially when the claim is bogus. And so What I'm trying to do with this is to show you there's an alternative approach where we say, we don't need copyright. Maybe we did at one time, but we don't increasingly for music, for books, for photographs, maybe, maybe for big blockbuster movie productions, maybe for big software practices, but we have way more copyright than we need these days. (laughs) And people are going to learn, I think, that they don't need copyright and they're going to start saying anti-copyright. They're going to mark their works and say, please, take it and enjoy it, have a good time at your birthday party. You know, don't worry about copyright. I think we're heading to that world. So, thank you all for listening to some thoughts I wanted to share with you about copyright. Please get a hold of the book, Intellectual Privilege. It's available online in ebook format, and we'll have hard copies here somewhere. And I welcome your thoughts as well on this very interesting topic. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Perhaps Professor Newman will sing Tom, Tom Bell's. Uh, <laughs>
2: You Happy should be birthday. so lucky. Um, I'm going to get a little bit more into the weeds on some of the underlying, you know, legal theoretical issues that Tom talks about in his book, because that's the uh, part of this debate where I think he and I have, you know, the the biggest divergence of opinion. I don't disagree with him about many of the... Uh, practical problems that exist because of statutory copyright or the fact that there, there is overclaiming and that recalibration in some cases is necessary. But I disagree with his basic approach as to how we should think about these things. Um, So what is exactly at stake in this question of the relationship between copyright and common law? I think the way the question is being framed in the book assumes a false dichotomy. Either copyright has to be a pre-political moral imperative such that failure to grant it absolute perpetual protection is just grounds for revolution, or it's purely a matter of discretionary industrial policy with no moral content whatsoever. Now, I think the truth is actually a little bit more complicated than that. I don't think those two categories exhaust the logical possibilities, and I think that the muddled state of the common law and constitutional history reflects this. I think the right answer is that copyright is grounded in natural law in the sense that authors do have a legitimate moral interest that can be protected without unjustly infringing the liberty of others— The existence of such a moral interest had been recognized by common law courts and was widely accepted at the time of the founding. However, the principles translating this interest into a properly defined and limited right had not been worked out and embedded in the common law in such a way that they could simply be incorporated by reference, as other property rights could. Locke thought copyright was a valid application of the same principles underlying other property, but he didn't imagine that it would be recognized in the state of nature any more than the right to exercise one's voting rights and preferred stock could be recognized in the state of nature. As Harold Demsets observed, instituting property rights isn't costless, and people don't generally incur those costs until the economic facts on the ground make it worthwhile— Copyright is a moral interest that only becomes salient enough to be translated into a rights claim when society achieves a certain level of affluence, division of labor, and technology that can support a market in intellectual works. At that point, legislation may be needed to establish the basic parameters of the right, even though I much agree with Tom that I would like to see most of the heavy lifting of actually establishing the full contours of the right done by common law adjudication. But the purpose of the progress clause was to underscore the difference between this legitimate institution of exclusive rights and the kinds of abuses that were outlawed by the statute of monopolies. Now, Tom wants to say that the Constitution contains a positive command that we have to think about copyright policy in purely utilitarian terms. Somewhere following the progress clause, he seems to discern an invisible footnote that reads as follows. In considering what will promote the progress of science, Congress is strictly forbidden from giving weight to any viewpoint, suggesting that authors have any legitimate moral claims, or that the best way to promote progress might be to construct a legal order that seeks to respect such claims within reasonable limits. Rather, Congress is required to approach this area by constructing a rational choice economic model and may secure only such increments of exclusive rights as can be shown through empirical regression analysis to directly increase the number and quality of works produced on a prospective quid pro quo basis. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that Tom doesn't really believe government could actually do this effectively. Anyone who believed that would already have thrown out Smith and Hayek and ought to be advocating a centrally planned economy. And Tom certainly is not doing that. But for some reason, he insists that our framers commanded our government to think about copyright solely in those terms. Now... I think there's a better approach, one in which we implement copyright policy the same way common law implements rights and other resources, by trying to draw lines that balance the just claims of creators against the liberty interests of others and then lets the market ships fall where they may. Of course, there are are important distinctions between works of authorship and tangible resources that have to be taken into account. There are also important differences between land, chattels, wild animals, fugitive mineral resources, riparian water flows. In every single one of these areas, we have to figure out what kinds of claims deserve to be recognized as valid. How should they be acquired? How far do they reach? What burdens can others be justly required to bear to comply with them? None of that can be answered by a priori deduction from first principles. It all requires the kind of principled yet pragmatic fleshing out that happens through common law adjudication. Now, Tom argues in his book that copyright can't possibly be regarded as a valid property right because it curtails pre existing common law rights. But that simply begs the question. All property rights necessarily function by curtailing the liberty of others, including the liberty to use their own property. If you own Blackacre, I am forced to walk around it. I'm being curtailed in my natural liberty to roam where I want. I'm being forbidden from using my own legs and my shoes and my car, just as much as copyright forbids me from using my pen and ink and computer in certain ways that harm other people's interests. Now, you can argue that one of these claims is justified and the other one isn't. But you can't substantiate that claim by reference to a sense in which they are operationally identical. Tom also wants to argue that copyright can't be a property right because, essentially, it doesn't fit the suit. It's not perpetual. The exclusive rights it grants are limited in scope and riddled with technical exceptions, as though the premise is that any form of ownership other than a perpetual fee simple protected by an absolute trespass rule can't possibly qualify as property. But Tom can't mean that. He knows, as well as any 1L property student, that common law recognizes all sorts of property rights that don't meet that description. And not only, you know, use rights, for example, easements, profits of prandra, riparian water rights, all of which are property rights recognized to common law, but not defined by a broad right to exclude from a resource in its entirety. Um, and not only are there lots of recognized property rights that don't fit the suit, even Johnny Bravo doesn't fit the suit. Fee simple ownership of land is not absolute or eternal. At common law, one person can own an easement over your land, which means your right to exclude has to give way. The doctrine of necessity lets people enter your land without permission in cases of emergency. The doctrine of nuisance limits what you can do on your land if it interferes with your neighbor's use of his land. Nuisance doctrine is every bit as messy as fair use doctrine and for very similar reasons, but it's part of the common law definition of property rights. Adverse possession limits the amount of time you can even own your land if you don't pay attention to it and let someone else camp out. And adverse possession has an impeccable common law pedigree, even though it incorporated a statutory determination of the exact amount of time needed to lose your land claim. So I share strongly Tom's general institutional preference for common law over legislation as a way of defining the proper contours of rights. However, the mere fact that legislation played a key role in the definition of a property right can't disqualify it. As a valid property right or as a valid part of the common law, unless you want to throw it all out. Because the trail from feudal tenure to common law property and land was not blazed by common law judges from the bottom up acting in a hermetically sealed chamber. It was shaped at numerous crucial junctures by parliamentary enactments, starting with quia emptores, which created the alienable fee simple. It can't be it com, I love common law as much as Tom does, but it can't be that you, you can't put it in a hermetically sealed chamber from legislation and say that. I agree with the the fears about rent-seeking legislation, but you can't simply say anything legislation touches is tainted and therefore not uh, not valid. Um, So the most basic argument for natural property rights usually goes something like this. I think what Tom presented is the way most people read Locke, and frankly, if you understand Locke that way, I agree that it's not very strong. I don't think that's quite... That's not the way that I understand Locke. And I think the the basic argument tends to be No one can survive or flourish without making use of things. And therefore, each of us has a moral interest in appropriating things for our own use and being free from interference in our attempts to make use of them. Now, to operationalize that, all you really need is a usufructory right, not a fee simple. A usufruct just imposes a narrowly tailored duty on you not to interfere with my actual use, but otherwise leaves intact your liberty to interact with the resource as you please. If you want to justify a trespass rule, which Tom argues in his book is really the sine qua non of property, you're going to have to do more work. Um, I'm not claiming that there's no good reason for a trespass rule. I'm just pointing out that reasons are required, and they don't necessarily follow from the concept of property or apply to every form of property interest in the same way. So now let's say you and I have agreed to respect these basic use of property rights I've described. We've internalized the idea that we shouldn't use violence against each other. We shouldn't interfere with our ability to use objects we've appropriated. We've successfully reached the stage of social contract that permits subsist- subsistence farming. Okay, yes. But now let's suppose you're a farmer and you've managed somehow to grow a huge surplus of wheat, so much wheat that you and your family can't possibly consume it or make any other productive use of it before it rots. Now as a practical matter, either someone else is going to use it or it's going to be wasted. Now I could come along and say, well, I see you've got a, lot of, you've got a moral interest in unmolested use of your wheat, but you're never going to use that wheat. What possible property violation could there be in my helping myself to something that you can't possibly use? I'm not impacting your right to make personal use of your labor. Just think of the deadweight loss that will be avoided when I take all this unused weed and distribute it to my friends. Now, I don't think, and Locke doesn't think that there's any compelling answer you can give me that stems solely from the premise that tangible goods are riverously consumed or that you mixed your labor with them. I admit your right to consume, I just don't admit your right to continue claiming ownership over things you can't consume. That's the lock-in waste proviso. Now, there is a compelling answer that tells me I can't take your wheat, but it relies on a second moral interest, in addition to the mere one in unmolested personal consumption. And the moral interest I'm referring to is being permitted to offer the fruits of your productive labor as a basis of exchange for value with others. This is the key to turning human society into a positive sum game based on gains from trade. It's the only thing that enables us to have a society based on division of labor in which people can actually concentrate on creating intellectual works, not just as a hobby that they post on YouTube, but as a way to make a living, which is of benefit to all of us. That's the the whole basis of, of the gains of trade from society's comparative advantage. And that can only function if we agree to understand that property includes a right to deny others access to value they've created even when their interest in doing so is not use but exchange. Now, just identifying that interest, of course, leaves a lot of hard questions unanswered. As with all property rights, we have to engage in careful calibration to keep your claim to be free from harmful interference balanced with my liberty to pursue my own legitimate interests. Um, But if I take all your surplus wheat, we don't know for sure whether you would have managed to sell any of it, but now we know that you won't. And if I copy your manuscript and distribute it to everyone with an interest in reading it, we don't know for sure how many people would have bought it from you, but we do know that now none will. And the common law rights, if you take out the right of first publication, which is a form of copyright, the common law rights Tom wants you to rely on won't really help you. There's no common law right that will let you go around and prevent other people from printing a manuscript and taking away all of your possibility to exchange the value you've created with others. Now, again the implementing this interest of the author requires you know it presents different problems in some respects from implementing your right to the wheat. But there's no reason, in principle, why this fleshing out of rights and duties couldn't have taken place through the same common law process that did it for land and shadows. Unfortunately, in my view, the common law courts didn't get a chance to weigh in on copyright until late in the game. Because for the first roughly 200 years of the printing press, who got to print? what well, was a matter of censorship and guild privilege. Even under that unlovely regime, however, a strong norm developed that printers shouldn't publish an author's manuscript without paying him for it. And this is precisely the kind of custom that can and did come to be enshrined as a common law right of first publication. As Blackstone put it, an author's right to enjoin an unauthorized publication turns on his original and natural right, which every man has as his own, in his own composition. This right was recognized in the U.S. and persisted until it was preempted by the 76 Copyright Act. Now, Tom doesn't dispute the existence of this common law, right? He just says it, it's not really copyright because it doesn't extend beyond the first publication. But I think, in principle, it has everything to do with copyright because it illustrates both that the common law accepted the moral interest underlying all copyright, and the ability to enjoin unauthorized publication already contains all the features that Tom claims contradict common law rights. Now, of course, the much harder question is the one that Tom pointed out before. How long should copyright last after an unauthorized publication? And the, you know, it, it, I don't believe it's the case that any moral interest recognized by common law necessarily has to be a perpetual right. It doesn't. Madison didn't think so. The problem is that it's institutionally difficult For common law judges to pick a number other than zero or infinity, because it's hard to get to any particular number in between by way of analogy, which institutionally is the way common law courts function. But nevertheless, imagine that we did live in a world where the opinion in Miller versus Taylor was the original font of copyright law. All right? Now, and if copyright had solely been developed from that point on as a matter of common law, I don't think we'd be in a worse place. It might be that we would have doctrines saying that theoretically copyright was perpetual, except that there's 10 different lines of cases establishing ways in which it can be lost as a result of constructive abandonment, estoppel, prescriptive easement, accession, adverse possession. As a practical matter, we might not have very many works that, that survived very long under that regard, and the ones that did would only be the ones that people were continuing to make available to the public for commercial reasons. Or it might be that we would still be citing Miller v. Taylor for the basic holding that there's a legitimate property claim, But we'd be citing other cases that had superseded it on the issue of duration. You could have recognized only a life estate, or you could have had something analogous to the hot news doctrine that limited copyright in any work to the customarily expected period of its commercial life. Miller was just the beta version of common law copyright reasoning. It still had a lot of bugs to work out. Of course, as we know in the real world, as Tom points out, Miller appeared late in the day and was overturned by the House of Lords in Donaldson v. Beckett. I think it's significant, however, that the majority of the common law judges who actually opined on the matter believed copyright to be a valid common law right. This wasn't because they didn't know the history. They knew quite well that copyright had not emerged pristine from the pens of judges, but had come into being as a tainted descendant of guild monopoly rights. Nevertheless, those judges held that copyright deserved to be recognized as a property right because it embodied the same moral principles underlying other property rights. The House of Lords, by contrast, which is a legislative body if you prefer common law judges to what legislatures do in non-transparent decision making, the House of Lords overruled that in in Donaldson v. Beckett, but it's it's a legislative body that doesn't issue opinions, so the only thing we know for sure is that they held copyright doesn't survive its statutory limitation. So I don't see any reason to accuse Madison of deception, as Tom sort of does in his book in Federalist 43, when Madison wrote in Federalist 43 that the copyright of authors has been solemnly adjudged in Great Britain to be a right of common law. Madison wasn't claiming that copyright had to be perpetual. He was proposing a constitutional provision saying it can't. All he was trying to establish, I think, is that protection of copyright is a proper power to grant the federal government. And he thought if, if he thought copyright violated natural and common law rights, he wouldn't think it was a proper power. He's pointing to British common law because if common law judges recognized copyright as a valid claim in principle, that at least meant it was consistent with natural law and protecting it was a legitimate function of the state. Um, and I don't see any reason why we cannot accept at face value Madison's statement in The Federalist that. The public good fully coincides with the claims of individuals. I don't think we're stuck between a moral uh, moral natural right version of copyright or a consequentialist version of copyright. I think in most areas we realize that they coincide. All the state legislatures who protected copyright, as Tom points out, put preambles to their their acts, asserting precisely this that it is both we're protecting the rights of authors and furthering the public good. Now, I think that what Tom's worried about here, and with some reason, is that you might draw the implication from that that anything that furthers the claims of authors therefore promotes the, pub- the public interest or the progress of science. And to be fair, copyright owners do tend to argue in this vein. I don't think that's what Madison meant, though. I don't think he meant anything that that um, helps the claims of individuals coincides with the public good. He meant... Just claims. And it mattered that the common law had recognized copyright because the common law is the institution that primarily identifies and caches out just claims. I don't think just claims means I created it. It's my labor, therefore I win. Just claims means claims that are not overreaching that further the, legi- the, moral, the, excuse me, the legitimate moral interests of an author without unduly restricting the liberty of others. That's what common law has had to work out for every form of property right. Now, I agree with Tom that there's plenty of room for improvement on this score in our present copyright law. What I disagree is that we should, in effect, poison the well by seeking to delegitimize copyright as a moral claim. Progress occurs only if people choose to dedicate their scarce resources, including their lives, to intellectual production. How does it encourage people to make that choice? To tell them, if you choose a career producing widgets, we'll protect you by sacrosanct property rights that permit you to make as much profit as the market will bear. But if you choose one producing books, we're going to permit you to earn as much money as we think is the bare minimum needed to keep you producing. It's not simply a question of money, it's a question of dignity. As Deirdre McCloskey has recently been pointing out, progress isn't achieved solely as a result of institutions that constrain and incentivize economic behavior, but as a result of treating innovation as an activity worthy of dignity and honor. That doesn't mean we have to throw ticker tape parades as each new installment of Twilight hits the shelves. It suffices to tell authors we won't stand idly by while other people flagrantly misappropriate or destroy your ability to offer what you've created to others as a fair exchange of values. I'll stop there and we can talk. Thanks. Well, well I'm not
0: sure what to do with the, the sleepy consensus we've arrived at around uh, issues. Uh, Tom, a few words of response if, you're, if you... Want to? Okay. Um,
1: I really want to hear from you all, but I'm so delighted with Chris's uh, comments that I do want to say a few things about them. I want to thank Chris for really giving some serious thought to this and on a number of points being uh, quite convincing. I think he and I agree more than he realizes, perhaps, although I will say, you know, I'm not going to get cranky about this. Some things that he said I said in the book is not what I would say I said in the book, but I'll leave you to read the book and figure that out for yourself. First of all, let me note one thing. I think this is important because I do write about this. I do not say, in fact, I say quite the contrary, that there's no moral claim to um, the expressive works that an artist creates. In fact, I can read to you from the book. It says, uh, to say that copyright does not protect any natural rights is not to say that it has no ethical justification. I do believe there are ethical reasons to... Uphold, respect, and honor the works of artists and publishers. I don't think the way to do it is through federal legislation that threatens people with $150,000 in statutory damages anytime they make an unauthorized copy of a work. Well, what kind of moral claims do I have in mind? A couple of things, and these you can take care of under common law. First of all, if you make an unauthorized reproduction that you pass off as your own, that is some form of fraud, and common law makes that actionable even if you published it without proper authorization. It is arguably actionable as fraud. At least there's a misrepresentation there, because the implication is that it, what, came from the heavens or came from you. So there's an argument authors can make, which I think the common law would uphold, that you have to give them due credit. So that's one thing. Another thing is simply Looking into your heart and saying, this music or painting or sculpture moves me, and I appreciate that, and I want to share my appreciation with the Creator. That is wholly appropriate, indeed, I think ethical. We don't enforce that with a stick or a gun, however. We enforce that the same way we enforce edicts to be charitable. I view copyright as something like welfare for authors. Just as we have welfare for the poor and the impoverished for good reason because our hearts go out to them and we see suffering, we recognize in a just society you need to take care of the least worst off. For the same reason, I think a culture society recognizes and should uphold the the respect that authors deserve. Now, that is ethical, but it is not coercive, and libertarians should be the first people to recognize. There are a lot of ethical good things in this world, some of the best ones, the most important ones, that you do not enforce with a gun. In fact, that derogates from their ethical force. If you say the only reason you should do this is because I'm going to throw you in jail otherwise, I believe a lot of what copyright does is well-meaning, But it just goes too far. It's got way too much muscle, where merely moral suasion and sweet words should do the work. I'll note, too, because I've had the same debate with Epstein. I had a wonderful debate with Richard Epstein about this. Richard, unlike uh, 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 Chris, I think it's fair to say, is not such a big fan of Locke. Richard and I agree about that. But, But Richard, too, rolled out these examples, riparian rights, rights to oil and gas. And unfortunately with Richard, I never got a chance to get a word in edgewise on this particular point, so (laughs) I get a chance here. He he talks really quickly. And say, those are all non-rivalrous in consumption. Non-rivalrous in consumption. Okay, the fundamentally different. Of course there's a spectrum of different property rights. I've taught property. I've studied the common law. I recognize all that. But to, to roll those examples out as a justification for copyright and not follow up with the really fundamental observation that oil and gas and water, et cetera, are... Rivalrous in consumption, as are other tangible property rights, I think it's just doing a disservice to our understanding of these issues. Copyright is fundamentally different from the other subject of property because it's non-rivalrous in consumption. If I sing the song that you wrote, you can fully enjoy your song, and I can enjoy it too. And that's a beautiful thing. Thence came Jefferson's quote about how an idea is like a lighted taper, his fancy word for candle, and one lighted candle can illuminate the world. It's a beautiful thing about copyright. It's one reason I like the subject matter of copyright. But it makes it fundamentally different from oil and gas and water and cars and houses and guitars and all these other tangible property rights. Um, boy, there's a lot more I could say. Let me just say one more thing. We'll hand it over to you guys because I want to hear from you too. I never say that copyright is nothing like property. And I never defended it as only a matter of trespass. I've got a whole chapter on this. In fact, I will say lots of things about copyright. In fact, I started my talk this way. I'll say it again. Lots of things about copyright are property-like. In fact, it's best features. I just heard the Supreme Court's going to take this case involving the rights of the creator of Superman in uh, that uh, that work from so long ago. And that case basically turns on the reversionary rights of authors. And this is one of the most effed up things about the Copyright Act, that you can sell your work allegedly to someone, give them all the rights, and then revisit it some 35 years later and say, oh, yeah, I want to take back the rights I gave you, even though I promised I wouldn't. And I think that's a total mess. That's not a good thing. We should have more property rights-like things in copyright. Uh, we could talk about the Aereo case that was recently Uh, before the Supreme Court. And again, there, I think it's just a mess because they're not taking property rights seriously enough. So I like those aspects of copyright. I like its property-like aspects. We should make the world more Kosian in that way. But that does not mean we should equate it to property because in many respects, it is not like property. It is a government-granted privilege. It applies only to non-rivalrous goods. And at our peril, At the peril of good public policy, do we forget those things? My friends on the right, I think, have been bamboozled by the rhetoric of property. They so love property, they have been fooled by seeing it applied to copyright. They think, oh, it's called property, i got to step up to the plate and defend it. No, my friends, you don't. You need to take a more sophisticated view of things and recognize, yeah, it's kind of like property. Taxi medallions have property-like aspects. Does that mean we should defend them to the hilt? No. You have to recognize it has privilege-like aspects, too, in ways that property rights and tangibles do not. So, as with Chris, I say, let's take a more sophisticated view of this. And my book is simply an attempt to open another view of the subject. I view copyright as kind of like a globe. There's lots of ways to map a globe. You can do a Mercatus projection. You can do all kinds of different projections. So in my book, I offer just another look at copyright. I'm not gonna say it's the only way to understand copyright. I think it's the best way, but just one guy talking. I just wanna offer you another perspective on copyright where we can step away from the property model and look at it through this other lens. I think it reveals new and useful things about copyright. And I think if lawmakers were to maybe take some of that to heart, we'd end up in a better, more free, more prosperous, more cultured world. Thank you.
0: Before we uh, allow you all questions, and I imagine several of you have questions or brief comments, um, I'll... uh, I want. I want to ask a question. That's. It's got a little bit of a longish setup, but this. This. Uh, this interaction between the common law and statutes is re- is really interesting to me. And and, uh, I was I was reminded during Professor Newman's uh, uh, talk of the, uh, the Communications Decency Act, Section Two Thirty, which um, which people really love because it provides protection against suits for uh, providers of um, internet comment boards and other services that allow people to, to publish on the internet. CDA 230 was, uh, I think, meant to codify a couple of cases, the CompuServe case and the Prodigy case, uh, where the, where early common law in this area, early common law being 90s, uh, 1990s, early common law in this area was starting to find no liability for providers of these services. CDA Section 230 came along and it created what most people call an immunity Extending to these services, and I think it's very different uh, for the f- a finding of no liability under the common law and a statutory finding of immunity. It suggests that all these internet service providers should be liable, but public policy has come in and given them a special exception. And I think that's an interesting, maybe maybe delicate, and maybe maybe a little bit prim um, illustration in my mind of how statutory law comes into developing common law and mucks around with it. That's a, that's a small mucking around, but I took from. What Chris Newman was, was saying that uh, there's a decent argument, and forgive me if I'm, if I'm interpreting you wrongly, that, that the common law was emergent and the common law would have continued to emerge to create, uh, to create and extend what we now uh, call copyright. And I'd be interested in both of you to comment on that. Perhaps first, Tom Bell. Uh, are, you, are you thrown off by the statute and the public, the public choice issues that arise under a statutory law? Are you thrown off the trail that was an emerging common law of copyright that, that probably should have, uh, should have developed.
1: I thought that was one of Chris's most interesting observations and uh, something I'd like to think about more. There's an argument to be made there, but of course it's, uh, it's all conjecture. It's hard to say how courts would have developed uh, the nascent uh, common law of copyright. I will say that I still stick to my guns in saying I really don't think first publication rights were much like copyright today. Basically, what courts were there doing— we're simply protecting the same rights authors would have gotten through their traditional tort and contract rights. I don't think really calling it common law—I'll th- say not only does calling it common law copyright not add anything, it mud- muddies the waters. In fact, we should call those authors' rights. A few courts, few jurisdictions said that if someone knowingly takes a work and publishes it and first before the author— that's actionable, but I think, my friends, you can do all that same work without in creating this whole new doctrine, without introducing the notion courts are going to create copyright. You just do it through tort claims of, say, violation of trade secrets or contract claims. And to the extent we do that, we encourage artists and publishers to tighten up those protections. If, if courts kind of cut them some slack and say, oh, we know what you meant to do here. We'll just kind of make up some doctrine here. I don't think that's the way to go. I think you say, all right, you want to nail this down with a contract publisher? You want to protect it under lock and key so that if someone gets away with it and actually publishes it, you can claim a trade secret violation? That's what you need to do. I think the world would be a better place there. And that, perhaps, is how things would have developed, in that case I would have been totally happy with
2: it. So why doesn't that argument apply to all tangible property as well? We could not have property rights that enable me to have the state go out with guns and forcibly return me to possession of a chattel that I've allowed to roam freely out there. I'll just use my contract and tort rights to contract with anybody that I hand it to so I can get, I mean... I I don't understand. What would be the tort claim that would enable the author to enjoin publication of a manuscript after it had been stolen? Because your claim is that, well, property only gets you your ink and paper back. If it's stolen from me, there was no contract. So what exactly is the nature of the tort claim that would get me an injunction?
1: Break into my office and take my paper. That's trespass to real property. It's trespass to chattels. It's probably conversion as well. That's easy. But I'll tell you, the fundamental difference is that copyright is non rivalrous in consumption. If you take that piece of paper, I go after you for taking that piece of paper. That's different from saying that you can't make a reproduction of my book because you read it and have a
2: photographic memory. Right, so I'd have a remedy for whatever damages I suffered for the momentary dispossession of my manuscript or for whatever damage you did coming into my office. But. I, I wouldn't be able to stop the person who had stolen the manuscript from publishing it. Why
1: wouldn't you get it? injunctive relief? Of course you get injunctive relief. That cries Based out what? for injunctive right. relief.
2: Based, well, I don't understand. Based on what... If you recognize that there's an injunctive relief there, you must be recognizing some sort of tort claim that recognizes value in the literary property, not just the chattel of the manuscript. Well, that's true. Right? Sure. You say to some... The author says... In a
1: world without copyright, I stood to make a fair amount of money through this publication process, which doesn't rely on copyright, because we would have had the first edition come out. This has been well documented, by the way, by an author named Spoo in a book I reviewed for reason called Without Copyright, when he talks about how how it worked in the United States with regard to foreign works, which for a time had no copyright, and effectively... They created copyright through institutions and common law rights. And I'm saying that would happen here too. You'd go to the court, you'd say, this guy broke into my house. He stole my document. He's now out there making copies. I want damages because I was going to make that money and he's now got unjust profits. This is not copyright law. This is standard tort law. And I want injunctive relief because, uh, you know, he's got unclean hands. He comes into court. I don't think you'd have any trouble with that. We don't need to create a new doctrine. It just
0: complicates things. I know there are um, retiring, quiet, laconic people in the audience, but let's try to bring you out, the young woman in the green. If you'll wait for the microphone, uh, I don't obligate people to identify themselves because I'm big on privacy and anonymity, but if you want to identify
3: yourself, feel free. I'll identify myself. Katie McAuliffe, Americans for Tax Reform. Just on the last point there, um, in a digital world where someone can go into my, like say someone breaks into my Gmail account and takes my song and reproduces it, and reproduces the code or reproduces the sound and they make money off of that iteration. You know, like when we talk about privacy, we say that privacy shouldn't be different in the physical world as it is in the digital world. So electronic communications, privacy reform, I want the same fourth amendment rights for my digital content that I have for my physical content. So why, when it comes to our intellectual creations, which are also valuable to us in the same kind of way that privacy has value would we not want protection of that for authors and creators? And I know you've said under common law, but I, it seems to me that the statutory create, or not creation, but the statutory laws for copyright are something that help protect that and something that is valuable.
1: Well, I, I, I agree with the last claim. I mean, copyright does some things that I think the common law would do about the same way in which event I say copyright is, one, redundant, and two, puts us at the risk of these ter- terrible public choice pressures. Um, with regard to your particular example, I-, I think my analysis would proceed in parallel. I-, I agree with you. I don't think it really matters whether they break into your office physically or whether they hack your computer. In either event, it would be some sort of trespass, probably trespass to chattels in certainly the second case, and I think the common law, you know, could afford remedies. Now, Chris might say, and I would agree that, well, we don't see a lot of those cases. And I'd say that's because the statute has stepped in and kind of preempted the development of the common law. If we, as I think, you know, Chris very interestingly suggested, gave the common law a shot, I think we would end up with some pretty good doctrines that do much of what copyright does without all the abuses and, and overextensions that we see thanks to the statutory process. So basically, I agree with you, and I'd
0: say let's give common law a chance, and I bet you it would do pretty well. Uh, let's, let's come here. Same row. There are two Tim Lees here. This is one of them. They're both referred to in their community as the good Tim Lee. <laughs> is this the better? <laughs> um,
3: so I'm, I'm, I'm Tim Lee.
2: Um, I'm curious about the uh, the sharp dichotomy you're drawing between statutory and common law. Um, if you think about something like um, fair use, for example, my understanding was that was a largely a court developed doctrine that was codified by the 76 Act and has since been developed further. You know, there have been lots of um, decisions about things like thumbnails and search engines that didn't exist in 1976. Um, So I wonder if it's possible that while technically copyright is a a statutory regime, over time aspects of it have been developed by the courts and in practice we have something that looks more like what a common law regime might look like than a, a purely statutory regime.
1: So, so if I understand, uh, Tim, good to see you, Tim, by the way, been too long. Um, if I understand you're saying, you're saying that the development of the statute has brought about some common law processes, and I guess you're asking, perhaps I smile upon that. I shouldn't be so cranky about this, but I'm going to go, I'm sure if I thought about it, I wouldn't be so cranky, but I'm going to give you my cranky response. I think the, the term common law has been abused. Um, it's not simply what courts do. That's the way it's often taught in law schools, and I think it's a huge mistake simply uh, you know throwing things to courts and saying, well you clean up this mess because legislatures can't figure it out does not give us the kind of common law that I so respect. The common law that I so respect, you have to trace it back, like I say I'm being a little cranky here, a little anachronistic, you have to trace it back to basically late medieval England where courts were actually looking to see what happens in the fields and streets and there was competition between court systems which help, which helped keep them in check. So I make a distinction between judge made law and judge found law. And I'm not convinced that fair use and other statutory uh, developments in courts constitutes common law in the same way that those good old few basic rules of tort property and contract law constitute common law. And that's a quick answer to a complicated issue.
2: I'm not sure that the distinction between judge made law and judge found law is that clear, because when you read the common, I mean, any attempt to engage in common law adjudication is based on a a, a mixture of reason by analogy to, to custom. But anytime you analogize from something, as you know, you have to do it on the basis of some sort of principles, on some sort of framework that tells you which analogies are valid and which ones aren't, what are the underlying interests being served, which is why I think Tom probably agrees with me, that one of the reasons that the common law worked out so well was also because the judges, by and large, tended to adhere to underlying notions of natural law and that informed their reasoning. So, I mean, I think I understand the concern that once legislatures get a hold of something, it's going to become a public interest football, and that's clearly a problem. But there are places where common law adjudication can't necessarily come up with the basic framework that's needed in order to start kickstart an institution or to enforce it properly there's sometimes because and the reason for that is that there are sometimes places in the law where you need an arbitrary rule now by arbitrary i don't mean based on whim or done for you know, whimsical reasons. By arbitrary, I mean a rule that's necessary to implement a system of rights, but whose proper placing cannot be deduced logically from those rights. Somebody has to pick a number. Somebody has to make that call. And for the very reasons that make common law courts Um, institutionally valuable, which I think Tom agrees with, that the very fact that they're required to justify their opinions by analogy to already existing norms, the fact that they're not supposed to legislate from the bench. There's reasons why we don't want common law judges to make those kinds of arbitrary calls when they're necessary. Sometimes you need something like a legislature to intervene. So I agree it's an intractable problem. I don't have a good answer. But I, I think it's not sufficient to say... I mean, I don't think there's any such thing as a common law of property that you can claim is purely the result of bottom-up reasoning from analogy to custom. It's all permeated with an interplay between legislative enactments and common law elaboration on them.
0: I don't know of another Phil Kirpin, but this is referred to as the good Phil Kirpin among most.
4: <laughs> I, think, uh, I think there might be one in Australia. I'm not sure, but thank <laughs> you, Jim. Uh, I have a question for Professor Bell, a more practical question about the rights that you're disclaiming in the publication of this book. Um, if I were to, say, prepare an electronic derivative of your book uh, that is less than the whole work, say, removing a word or a sentence or a page, And uh, I published that derivative of less than the whole work on the Internet. Uh, Would you promise not to pursue any copyright claim against me?
1: That's a good question. I haven't had that tested yet. I think probably I would go back and try to see what courts did with the 1790 Copyright Act. There's a de minimis problem, of course, if you take out one word and it's a conjunction and not a very important one, or even better yet, an adjective, and you take out an intensifier and reproduce the whole of the rest of the book, would that constitute a copy under the 1790 Copyright Act? I mean, we could fuss about it. We'd probably say, yes, that's a de minimis change. And you're looking for a bright line rule, and I'll say, Get ready to be frustrated, my friend, because the law does not always admit to bright-line rules. If you recreate just one chapter, is that a reproduction of the book? I'd say probably not. And you want to know where in the middle? And I say to my students, the presence of dusk does not mean night equals, night equals day. You can find gray cases. That does not mean we should not make the distinctions. So that's as far as I can go. It's a gray question. Uh, we'll have to see what the particular facts are.
5: On the aisle? Hi, I'm Jim Lowen. I wrote a book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, that it sold over a million copies, so I do care about copyright law. Um, and recently, I also blog, and I blog at HNN, History News Network. Um, and recently, I wrote a piece about the uh, infamous NFL team in this city and the issue of its logo and uh, trademark and such. Um, and I then got an a email from... Uh, somebody at Oxford University Press, who told me that he was using that piece in a book they're coming out with about race relations and such. And could I help him get um, permission to use two of the images in it? He didn't need my permission for the piece, he informed me, because I hadn't copyrighted it, and generally stuff at HNN is not copyrighted. And I was stunned... Uh, I'm in private practice. I gave up my day job and and I write for a living. Uh, So I uh, managed to get copyright on it. But my feeling was that OUP, Oxford Oxford University Press, as many of you know, is not really exactly a university press. It's the most commercial of all university presses. So it's basically a commercial press. So they're going to make money off of this book. At least that's their intention. Uh, And I didn't see why I shouldn't make some of it since I supplied some of it some of the book. Um, so I asked him, what's your usual fee when you pay a fee? And he told me $250. So I said, OK, pay me $250. And he did. Um, but if I hadn't had copyright, I would have, I, I was stunned to have you here, I would have asked for charity for OUP. I would have said, you guys should give me $250. And I was more happy, and gets back to a point you used the word dignity at one point, uh, I, I was more happy saying, you will pay me $250 than why don't you pay me $250. Uh, now the, there is an issue, maybe of length, and I may—I I have a suggestion for this indeterminate period. Maybe one generation, death plus one generation. So I'm seventy-two, and a generation is maybe thirty years at the outside. So let's say I got—I just published this thing. Well, so let's say thirty years after I die, and that would take care of Walt Disney. I mean, he, it's been more than thirty years. Comments on that? Well, as
1: regard to your. Particular hypothetical, um, I, I can't give you legal advice, although I also will not say you did anything wrong, but I, I say, I, I with you, I'm with you on that, that ethically I think OUP was on very shaky ground there, and I encourage us to develop a culture where people understand, well, that's just not done, that's, that's just unseemly, that's rude, and where people shake their fingers at folks who don't pay. Would uh, that world still work to encourage expressive uh, creation? I think it would. It would be a little different from the world we're in, but I think it'd be a better world because people would not immediately you know, reach for a club and say, I get to throw you into jail if you don't do what I say. Now, it is nice, as I totally will concede, to be able to do that when you're trying to assert your rights. It makes things so much more simple, just as it would make it simpler to do charity if we could just go out and grab the stuff we need. But it's not clear to me that... All told, in the long run, we end off. We end up better off in a world where, um, you know, you can threaten OUP that way. But I, I will agree, definitely, you got an ethical claim, and legally under current law, I gotta say, I would take that case, sure. <laughs>
2: I guess what I don't understand still, and th- this is, I guess, the key issue. Why why don't we use that approach? Say I'm, I'm trying to run a business where I send shuttles out there to various people, I lease them and lend them, and someone misappropriates one and runs away with it. Now, we could have a rule just like Tom just described for copyright law where we all wag our finger at that person and say, you really shouldn't do that. You shouldn't take somebody's car and not give it back to them. Um, and now Tom says there's a key difference there, and it, apparently the difference has to do with either either the fact that the car is you know, rivalrously consumed. But of course, to me as a business owner, it, it, nothing of my interest in use of personal use or consumption of that car has been hurt. The only thing that that car represents to me is a possibility to make an exchange of value with someone else. In terms of the harm that's being caused to me, that's it. I don't think that supports the distinction. I mean, the the other possibility is that Tom said, well, he thinks that not his version of natural law. I, I don't fully understand it. I'd like to hear him actually flesh it out a little. His version of natural law is that if I could make, if, if in a state of nature I could credibly claim that I could protect this right, that justifies asserting it as the type of moral claim that justifies the use of force. <laughs> But I don't understand. I mean, that might work if I'm a Korean grocer hunkered down protecting my store in the face of a riot. I could credibly claim that I can protect my property rights. But if we're going to live in a sophisticated economy where I'm sending property, I have property interests and in things that are far flung and different people are using them and licensed. I don't think I can credibly protect those rights on my own any more than I can protect my right to have not have people publish my manuscript. So I don't fully understand. I'll be happy to explain. You're presuming the answer to the question. You're presuming that you have a right to that income
1: stream to justify having a right to the income stream. And I say to people who want to make more money off of their expressive creations... Take a number and get in line, buddy. We all want more money, but that's not enough of a justification. To make it clear again, I'll try another example. Suppose that the author of the work says, you know, I don't think people should exercise fair use rights over my work. Where's that come from? Locke says, I get it, it's mine, and you're doing some kind of parody? Well, look, you're using my work to do it, I don't like it. And by you running off and taking fair use, you're reducing my income stream. I have an expectation in that. When we say to that person, well... You're not, you know, where do you get the thought you to have? Well, I got Locke on my side. Locke doesn't talk about parodies. So, Chris, that does saying that you're <laughs> disappointed that somebody is making more money that you'd rather have in your pocket by no means justifies your claim to that money. You have to have a separate justification, and I offer one in the book, and it's basically this natural rights view. But, uh, yeah, there you go. But then you just take, away my life. take away your right.
0: We'll but- leave the... Given an, given
1: an. Sure. Um, and you could say, I don't. Suppose they took a fair use, or this gentleman wanted to take uh, some kind of use of my work. I could also claim, I want that right too. That doesn't justify giving me the right. Everybody wants more power over others. This is DC. You guys haven't got that yet. You need more than simply saying, I want to get that money. Now, I know you have claims you can make based on Locke. I've read those. I don't find them as convincing as other justifications. But let's understand, you need more to the argument than, oh, I wanted to make that money and I'm not making it. Just a quick
2: follow A little bit more. Just very quickly, I'm not advocating a claim that you have a right to a particular income stream. I'm simply saying you have a right to be free from certain types of wrongful interference in your attempts to generate an income stream. And I think that's different, but I'll
1: well, again, you can say the same thing about fair use. What are you doing interfering with my right to throw people in jail for making parodies of my work? You're interfering with my claim there. And yeah. you have to fall back to, well, that's not what the statute says. Well, then we're just taking a positivist view of the law. Whatever the statute says is fine. Well, if that's what we're going to, the view we're going to take, there's no use in writing a book like this. We'll say, you want to know what the law should be? It's what the law is.
0: We've got nothing to say about that. I don't think we do public policy that way. We shouldn't. In a happy accident, we'll hear a question from the other good Tim Lee.
4: I was going to say, as the other Phil Kirpin in the room, I'm sorry, Tim Lee in the room, I I feel almost obliged to ask a question. Even accepting for a moment that utilitarian uh, foundations uh, underlie the copyright clause in the Constitution, can you name another nation in human history that has seen the degree of artistic and technological advancement that has been occurring in the United States, particularly over the last three decades, when some of these laws are, in your terms, more draconian, uh, just to give you a couple of examples, artistically speaking, Bollywood accounts for something like three billion in box office receipts. Hollywood is thirty-five. Or, if you, since you speak more generally of intellectual property, if you talk about patents, in recent years, the United States has accounted for two-thirds of worldwide patents with five percent of the population. No nation even approaches. I think the next closest was Japan at maybe 10%. Even accepting for a moment that utility is the grounding concept here, can you cite an example? Because there are plenty of other legal regimes across the world. Can you name one that even approaches us in artistic or technological advance like that?
1: That's a great question. I think we can celebrate the success of American culture, and I, I think it's wonderful, and I don't think actually copyright is in a total crisis, in part because I look at the world around me and I say, wow, we enjoy this cornucopia of cultural wealth. Now, that said, I think a lot of the facts, so-called facts out there with regard to the influence of patent and copyright and other intellectual property protections are are bogus, basically. Mercatus, I read a draft paper, I hope they publish it, has a draft paper out there. I commented on it. Uh, Mercatus is coming out with a, a, a document that kind of tears apart some of these claims that, you know, Hollywood is worth so many jobs, patents generate so much, so many jobs. I tell you, my friends, the stuff you've read on that in press releases is very suspect. But I will say this, I mean, I, I'm, I'm not anti-copyright. I do take a cost-benefit approach to it, and I'm not advocating getting rid of copyright. I think we should move very slowly. I do not want to mess up a good thing, but I will say the success of our culture is evidence we don't need more. The question is always, should always be, not, can we throw more money at that author or that publisher? It should be, do you and me, those of us in the public? Because copyright's for us, really, end of the day. It's for us. Do we suffer a deficiency of music and photographs and films and and computer programs? I don't know about you, my friends, but I certainly don't. So when lawmakers say, "We we need more copyright, we need more patent, I would say, well, I don't see the problem you're trying to fix. In fact, if anything given the success of the current system and the costs it imposes, remember, that guy's copyright is a restriction on your liberty. We should talk about dialing it back. We'll take it slowly, but let's stop increasing copyright, okay? It's working fine now. We don't need more, and, and you can't simply say, but these industries are making so much money. That is not the question. The question is whether you and I and the rest of the public have access to the works that they're supposed to stimulate. We got it. I don't see any shortage. If anything, there's an overabundance. Sometimes I can't escape music. So I think we're in a position where we can start critically assessing copyright. I could take a patent some other day. Uh, We can start critically assessing copyright and conclude, well, you know, uh, I think we got plenty. It does have costs. Those are very salient, more and more salient every day because each of us on the Internet is violating copyrights left and right. So the time has come to question it and dial it back in a graduated way, which is why these – you'll notice my legislative proposals are not – Take a big X through the copyright act. They're very minor tinkers at the border, and that's all I propose: is slow reforms, gentle reforms in the other direction. We've gone far enough in the direction of more copyright.
0: So the economic, the economic question that's posed by the the constitutional uh, language is pretty well framed. Like, where would you set? Where would you set the scope of copyright? Where what would you set as the length of copyright? Do you know of anyone? digging in to do the actual research that'll give us that answer.
2: The two things I say
1: about that, people talk about copyright being delicately balanced. Oh, that's so wrong. It's so wrong because one, we don't have the numbers. What's the price of people not being able to recite MLK's speech at a public assembly? What's the price on that? We don't have the numbers. And two, even if we did have the numbers, lawmakers frankly would not care because they're not going to hear from the guy who's at a public assembly realizing, I can't recite, I have a dream. They're not hearing from that guy. So what we need are reforms that will slowly push us away from the statutory regime, which we're not going to fix. I'm going to go up to the hill the next two days. <laughs> I may change some minds, but honestly, I don't expect to change any laws. We need to move out of that regime towards the common law, a bottom-up process that's more organic and more directed towards what we in our, in our houses, at our desks, are, have to live with. That's the only way to fix this problem, not by having a bunch of scientists and economists try to work up the numbers. That's never going to happen, and if they get the numbers, it won't make any difference.
0: Uh, We're almost at time, but uh, let's take one last question. The gentleman over here in the green.
2: I'm curious.
4: Uh, My name is Brandon Butler. I'm at American University uh, Law School, and I'm curious if either of you have thoughts on the situation with pre-1972 sound recordings. In some sense,
2: they might be a kind of natural experiment because they're – Uh, excluded from federal copyright protection, and yet there doesn't seem to be a shortage of them. Um, And and also there are interesting lawsuits happening now, right? Sirius and Pandora are both being sued with common law claims in California uh, in pursuit of royalties for broadcasting those recordings. I'm curious what you guys think about that.
1: Well, if you're referring to Naxos and its progeny, I rue those. I see that as a big mistake. Um, I I don't think, again, I don't think there's really any such thing as common law copyright. And what we have here are states kind of, interfering with liberties that we should all enjoy. So I find it very distressing. Um, And I've got to say the natural experiment there is going to confirm, I'm afraid, that statutory and now court-created privileges go too far.
2: I think there's a variety of states that have done that and under slightly different theories. Some of them, I think, have statutes. Some of them have um, common law-based rights or at least arguments for common law-based rights. And um, I mean, the copyright statute, the federal statute, Deliberately, you know, didn't cover certain things, or it didn't get around to covering them. But it deliberately didn't preempt states from dealing with things that are outside the scope of federal copyright. So, I'm not sure exactly what the natural experiment you're talking about is. I mean, in one in one sense, it's a natural experiment that shows that there are um, that there are other uh, institutions other than Congress that view this as a valid interest. In terms of, I'm not sure what you mean. In terms of the the uh, the underlying effects of what will happen. I mean, there's not going to be any more pre-72 sound recordings created. So at this point, the the only you know the question is how long will those rights be extended? And you know, I don't know what the what we what you think the economic impact of that is going to be. Is that the question?
0: Well, we, we'll take that up during lunch, uh, which will be which will be served upstairs. Uh, before we go there, please join me in thanking for a really great discussion. Professor Tom Bell, <laughs> Professor Chris Schumer, thank you very much.